You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we look to make space for the Holy Spirit. My name's Phil, and today I am joined by Dr. Paul Wallace. This is a conversation I was really excited to have because, as I say to Paul, he's basically who I want to be when I grow up. He is an astrophysicist and has his Master's of Divinity degree. And so he is a man who looks at both faith and science and reconciles them. And we have a really fascinating conversation about what this means for our life and our faith. We talk about everything from looking at God not straight on, but from the side, and how we can learn about God from the things God has created, especially birds, as Paul is a birder. And we talk about mystery and knowledge, and that the more we think we know, that we actually realize that we don't know all that much. Talk about having a big faith rather than a small faith, and that the more we understand creation and study it through science, actually the bigger our faith gets. Rather than threatening it, it actually expands it. And this requires humility. And so I think kind of hidden in there, sometimes explicitly, sometimes under the surface, is a lot that can be said for our life as we look to make space for the spirit, for our spiritual life as human beings working and walking through this world. So I'm really excited you've joined us. I'm so grateful to Paul for coming on the podcast. Definitely check out his book, Love and Quasars. And I hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. Paul. Wallace. Welcome to the Rua Space Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. You know, I uh, you're kind of who I want to be when I grow up, if that makes sense. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before from anybody. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. You know, from, from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to be a physicist. And then, uh, well, I went to college for physics and then changed to ministry. And so when I found that a person exists out there like you, I thought, man, he is he's made it. You know, he's there. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So when I saw your book, Then Love and Quasars, I I was excited because it's uh, someone who comes from a perspective of having both a master's of divinity and a physics PhD and looking to reconcile these things. And so uh, just for a minute, can you share a little bit about what you do now and kind of how you came to have both those things be so important to you? Yeah, well, they've always been both very, very, very important to me. Um, As I mentioned in the book, I I was brought up in a house uh, where my dad was an engineer. He taught at Georgia Tech. There were lots of science books all over the house, but we also went to church every Sunday and Wednesday. We were there all the time. So I, I really grew up with, with both uh, science and, and, uh, and faith were really both, both very important. And I began to think about these two things uh, together at a very young age. And have sort of followed that through, you know, with with my uh, education and so forth. But it started very young with me. I love in your book, you talk about science, uh, the scientific method as Lectio, which at Rua Space, Lectio Divina is something we frequently sure. uh, practice as a community, as individuals, um, which basically just means divine reading, sacred reading. So you talk about the scientific method as a reading 
of God, basically. Can you can you kind of dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I actually gave a talk on this. I'm not sure how well it went, but I actually gave a talk on this <laughs> about a month and a uh, back in late October, a few months ago. But basically, you know, I think of encountering God in creation. I think of science as a particular way of doing that in a certain way of reading creation. And it's a certain set of rules, certain set of methods. Uh, there are actually many scientific methods. You hear of the scientific method in like fifth grade, but there are really uh, a, a large number of them. But I think of them all in a similar way as, as Lectio Divina is a way of encountering scripture. I think of the scientific method as a way of encountering God in creation. I haven't broken it down into steps, you know, like the four steps really in any formal way. But I do think of I do think of the scientific method as basically being a way of investigating the nature of God. So where have you seen that uh, in your own kind of research and studies? What, where has the method sort of been a reading for you? Well, um, I can think of several occasions in my life when I felt in the act of doing science like I had connected uh, with with God. Doesn't happen that often. Just like, you know, we have our we have our uh, worship, we have our, you know, prayer and meditation that we might do daily. And a lot of days you go through it and it just it's just routine. But every now and again, you get the aha moment, right, where you feel like all that work has connected you with with God. And yes. I, I felt that way a couple of times in science, uh, both on the very tiny scales. I did nuclear physics for a while. And also on the uh, largest scales, I did some uh, astrophysics as well. But in a couple of occasions, uh, once with a very particular nucleus, once with a very particular galaxy, I felt like I had connected and uh, with with God through through creation. So let's talk about the galaxy one. Are you are you willing to share more sure. about that Absolutely. specific situation? Yeah, I, I write about this in the book, in chapter five, I think, which is kind of the pivotal chapter. I talk about. Um, this experience I had, I was for three years. I, I worked as a as a faculty fellow at uh, Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, just outside of D.C. And we were trying to identify certain objects in space uh, because it's not always easy to do. Uh, something sometimes things that look like stars are not stars, for example. Um, and this particular thing looked like a star, but wasn't. It was actually a very, very remote galaxy called a quasar, and a, and a particular sort of subclass of quasar, which at the time was pretty rare. We found many more since then. But there's like a five-point checklist you have to do, you have to check off in order to assure yourself that it's one of these this, sort of this odd class of quasar. And um, I went through them, you know, step by step, and eventually got the last fifth you know, five out of five, and it was and it just, and, and it was a quasar that, at the time the light left the 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 the, the galaxy, the quasar is a kind of young galaxy. At the time that the light left the galaxy, it was seven billion light years away. <laughs> so by now it's twenty billion light years away, and uh, I felt like I had connected with this object on the remote you know, other side of the observable universe, and it was just a really. Re really a religious experience I had when I was able to finally snap in that that uh, identification for it. It's amazing when you say something like 20 billion light years. I don't know that our mind can fully comprehend no. the, the no. vastness. I'm, I'm pretty sure our mind can't comprehend the distance across the solar system, much less. The <laughs> I mean, there's, there's really no way to grasp it, I, I think, in any intuitive way. No. 
And I think that's that's what I love then about the ability for science and creation to reveal something about God. You you tell this great story about looking at the planet Uranus yeah. and kind of, can, can you share a little bit about not looking at it, but looking to the side and what that's meant for understanding God? Because I yeah. think that's I tell, I tell really cool. Yeah, I tell this funny story. Uh, uh, there's, um, uh, there are, Traditionally, when you think of planets that are visible to the unaided eye, you think of five. Think of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those five, since antiquity, since before the recorded history, have been known. But it turns out that Uranus, or Uranus, depending on which way you want to say it, is um, you know the planet beyond Saturn, but it is actually visible, but it's just barely on the threshold of visibility. And you can't see it by looking at it directly. <laughs> you have to look at it to the side. You have to look to the side of it. And when you do that, the light falls on the more sensitive part of cells on the back of on, on your retina, and it pops into view. But you're looking to the side of it. And when it pops into view, the instinct is to look right back at it directly. But when you do that, it disappears again. So you can only see it by looking to the side of it. And I think that's a funny thing that there's anything in the world that you can can't see by looking directly at it. You have to look to the side of it to see it. <laughs> and I think of God as being kind of that way. Um, God is not written, you know, sky written in the stars for us. Uh, it, God does not hit us upside the head with, you know, presence. Uh, we have to sort of, it's, it's a more intuitive thing and you, ha- and you can't look directly at it. You have to look to the side with some things. I think God is like that. So what about God makes God one of those things? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just, um, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I just know that the more that I think that I've got a hold on what God is or what God isn't in some sort of definitive way, uh, the more God seems to slip through those definitions that I set up. So that's kind of what it looks like. No doubt. It's like when we... If we think we can look directly at God, then it's almost like we've put God in a box or it's a God that we can then control, right? right like, oh, I right. fully understood it. Right. But as long as we have to keep looking to the side, there's kind of a mystery there. Right, and right. It, it and, keeps us humble. Right. And that way, God can't become, as often happens, a conceptual idol, right? Because a lot of we have these, you think of idols as like, you know, golden calves or whatever, or statues of Nebuchadnezzar or whatever. But concepts can become idols as well, and you end up worshiping this concept you have rather than, and that in that sense, God always eludes our, our concepts, and that's what I mean when you can't look. I say you can't look straight at God. You can't just think God. Um, God is always going to be slipping out of that sieve, you know, right right through the sieve of our understanding, basically. I wonder if that's also partly why God said not to make images and things, you know, because then there's a sense in which, oh, now we can see God. There is God. And there's also a sense of like, as soon as you think you got it, it disappears. (laughs) Right. And that's also why, you know, many Jews will not use the word God, the the word given to Moses, you know, Yahweh would not use that word uh, because that's a holy word. And to to even use the word is is to be presumptive. Do you think that's why some Christians are sometimes afraid of science? As I think about what you're saying, it seems to me that we often think, oh, I see God in God's entirety and evolution or the Big Bang or whatever doesn't fit that image I have when I directly look at God. And so I have to fight against that. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think so. I think if you have a certain model of God in your mind, a certain concept of God in your mind, and if that concept is really kind of rigid, then it can be threatened by other concepts 
who come in and sort of conflict with it and sort of take it over. And I think science, because it is so, in a sense, simple, I, I don't mean to denigrate science, but in some sense, it's about it's about things that can be directly measured, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all it's it's all concepts. Uh, I think that if you have a very hard conceptual picture of God, then, yeah, it can be overrun. It can be threatened by other concepts. But, but no, that, that really reminds me of Tycho Brahe. I think you, you share a little bit about sure. his life in the book. So can you share a little bit about who he was? And then you, you have this, and again, I'm, I'm probably not quoting you directly, but that he couldn't see the universe as being as large as he imagined. And there's a sense in which it was because his God was small or kind of yeah. along those yeah, lines. He, he so sort can, of experienced some of this. Tycho was a, uh, he was the last great astronomer really to not use a telescope in Europe. Uh, he died a few years before a telescope was invented. He had all kinds of crazy instruments he used to look at the sky. But he lived a few decades after Copernicus. And by this point, the Copernican theory was out there. People were talking about it. Of course, the Copernican theory, uh, for those who are keeping score at home, is the idea that the Earth goes around the sun, not the sun around the Earth. The old model was that the Earth was stationary and the sun goes around it, which, of course, accords perfectly with everyday experience. So Copernicus's idea was pretty radical, but it was radical for several reasons. One is that it rearranged the universe. The old system pre-Copernicus basically had the Earth in the middle and the sun went around it, and that sort of Earth-centered cosmology had a particular theology that went along with it. Uh, if you look at, like, you know, the, uh, the Divine Comedy, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy, you kind of see that. But anyway... Uh, Tycho did not like the Copernican theory, and it wasn't just because it rearranged the planets, it's because of this. What a lot of people do not know is that is what Tycho knew, which is that if the Copernican theory is correct, if the Earth goes around the sun, then the stars, a consequence was that the stars had to be like 700 times, at least 700 times further away than previously thought. <laughs> That's big. So basically you have a little tiny solar system and then you have Saturn on the outside of that. And then you had like miles and miles and thousands upon millions of miles of empty space before you got to the stars. And so that really bothered Tycho. And Tycho thought, well, there's no way God makes so much empty space, wastes, you know, wasted space. And so uh, that's really the reason he rejected it uh, was because on theological grounds, he thought that God would never make, that the God he understood uh, would never make uh, a universe that was so out of sync with common sense, out of sync with, mm -hmm. you know, with what he thought was the, the natural, normal way of, of things. So his own concept of God kind of got in the way there of his science. So again, kind of the idea of he had the picture, he could see God directly and anything that disagreed with right. that must be thrown right. He out. had a very he had a particular view of God, which which he was brought up with, uh, and Copernican theory challenged it, um, and so he rejected science on theological grounds. And so, could we say then that Christians never need to fear a conclusion that science comes up with? I, I believe that's true, and I and I and I and I think that's true not just in astronomy, but also in biology, in even in uh, these days in neuroscience. Absolutely. I think there's, there's no, there's no, nothing to fear there. Nothing. And how, how, and I, that's my viewpoint as well, but how do you, how did you arrive there? How can you be confident? What would you say to someone who 
right now uh, would say, yes, the universe has to be 6,000 years old. We could not have evolved. Um, what might you say to them to sort of both challenge and encourage them, I guess? Well, you know, I have a couple of things to say about that. One is that I would tell them something that they've, that they certainly had already have already heard before, which is they are simply rejecting enormous swaths of science. And, uh, you know, they're rejecting major parts of geology, of physics, of biology, of astronomy. And so they're basically taking, you know, the, the careful patient work, 500 years worth and more of some rather intelligent people patiently uh, exploring the universe. This is, you know, immense amounts of work have gone into this, this, this picture of the world. And they're, they're basically rejecting all of that. They'll tell you that they're not rejecting all of it, that they accept some, some stuff like, you know, the atomic theory and stuff like that, that don't challenge their interpretation, but you can't just take certain parts of science out without destroying the rest of it. It's all kind of an integrated whole. So that's the first thing I would let them know is that you are in fact rejecting uh, really good evidence. But beyond that, I would say that this is kind of a pastoral question as much as anything else. Yeah. Uh, and th that's actually how I approach situations like this. I mean, I, I feel like it's up to me to have the best information and to argue my points where it's called for. But at the same time, I, I really see interactions with creationists as a, as a pastoral uh, opportunity as much as anything else. Because there's a fear there often. Yeah, right? I think there's a fear there. And a lot of times uh, people believe this just because they were told it, which is, you know, I mean, why do you think I mean, creationists are no different than us? I mean, why do you think the earth goes around the sun, Phil? It's not because you came to that conclusion yourself, right? You did, no, right. no evidence of your senses, no careful argument has led you to this conclusion. There's nothing that you can, you don't have any evidence. What happened was your fourth grade teacher told you it was true and you believed it, which is fine, right? This, this is the reason we believe a lot of things <laughs> is because people tell us that it's true. Well, creationists are no different. Many of them were brought up in, in worlds and in churches and in schools where they were taught that, you know, evolution is a lie. And so they believed it. And so right. a lot of times it's not just, it's, it's not really fear in this, in, in, you know, on that person's part. But I think that if you dig deep enough and go back enough, you'll see that it is essentially fear that drives it. Yes. But many times a person standing in front of you is just believing it for the same reason that you and I believe that the earth goes around the sun because we were told it by somebody that we trusted. And to say that that is false means that you can't trust the people that you thought you could trust. And so it's a whole big thing. You know, it's a whole uh, line of dominoes that starts to fall once you start to talk about it. It's not just a narrow matter of what goes around, of, 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 of you know, science. It has, sure. has to do with identity, you know, um, and a lot of other non-scientific questions. Well, and I think it, it also might go toward that difference between or relationship between mystery and what we can know about. Yeah. So what is mysterious and what can we truly know mm -hmm. and the tension there, right? And I mean, so this is kind of backtracking to the the Uranus story, right? Of not looking directly at, but looking to the side yeah. of. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the dance between mystery and knowledge? Well, it's it's funny because it's it's not a, um, 
a zero-sum game, as many people suspect it is. <laughs> right. It really is not. People think that the more you know, the less mystery there is in the world. Uh, and I assure you, in my experience, it is exactly not true. It is precisely mm -hmm. untrue. In my experience, the more that I've learned, whether it's about the universe, whether it's about you know birds, I'm kind of a bird uh, person, I'm a bird uh, watcher, or whether it's about you know physics or whatever it is, or theology, uh, scripture, everywhere I go, everything I learn, the more you learn, like the more the the, the more questions pop up. So it's it is truly. Uh, not a zero-sum game in the sense that the more you learn, the less mystery there is in the world. It's direct opposite. The more I learn, the more mystery there is in the world. Yeah, both with creation and with God, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we, we like to pretend, you know, the fact that God has revealed God's self in creation and in Scripture sometimes, I think, makes us think we can know more than we really can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do think that in general... Uh, people overestimate their knowledge more than they underestimate it. Mm. I, I, I really, they overestimate what they know. And of course, there's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which says that people who know extremely little are the ones most likely to think they know a lot. Hmm. People who have, you know, who have not been exposed to very much uh, tend to overestimate their knowledge and I think that's, I, th I think we tend to overestimate it. And that's just not, not just for people who are, who might be considered uneducated, but I think that's true for a lot of educated people as well. Yeah, that, that could be a problem. I think it makes us, <laughs> I think it makes us feel secure knowing things. I think it makes us feel secure and that's good. That's a good thing. But I, I do think that the mystery tends to, to uh, offset that and destabilize it and make us feel a little bit. Uh, insecure. And I think that's why we oftentimes overestimate our uh, understanding of things. Yeah. Well, that kind of goes back to humility. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like the more, and I'm by, I'm by no means at the end of my journey. I, I'm, I'm probably always going to feel like I'm at the beginning, but I think uh, the further I have journeyed, the more I've realized that humility is so central to so many things to just recognize that like, I, I have not arrived. Yeah. There's just so much more to go. Yeah, it is. It is required for I think for for virtually any creative activity. It's required if you're a teacher. It's required if you're a student. Yeah, humility is humility. Humility is big. And yeah, and then again, and just as soon as as soon as you think you've grasped God, it's either an idol or it's empty. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's just not possible. Right. So uh, we need a faith big enough and humble enough and I, I think also trusting enough yeah. to be able to encompass science. And that's one of the things you do in your book is you sort of draw this diagram of faith being big enough to hold science. Yeah. Can you can you dive into that yeah, for a few minutes? Yeah, I, I go through these little series of, of Venn diagrams uh, between, you know, involving faith and science and overlapping, non-overlapping, that sort of thing. But the one that I prefer the most is the one that, that basically uh, – has science as a subset of faith. Faith is a big circle and science is completely enclosed within it. Because I, I think I, I think faith is essentially uh, a matter of trust in, uh, in life, in the, the world that we've been put in. And faith, the thing about religious faith of any kind, whether it's Christian or whatever, is that it's always about everything. 
uh, faith is not content just to just to manage one little part of your life. Faith, yeah. faith is is really as it's cosmic in the sense that I mean, look at look at scripture, right? It starts at the beginning of time, ends at the end of time. You know, it's this cosmic. You know, I mean, the Bible could could have just been about Jesus and you know some of his teachings, and you know maybe ended with the resurrection and the ascension, and then that could have been it. But no, the Bible is is about everything. It starts at the beginning, it ends at the end. And so faith is about everything. And so I think that faith is, in that sense, faith is, you know, science is a certain way of thinking about certain kinds of things. It asks certain kinds of questions and demands certain kinds of answers, but it's not everything, but it's contained within everything, contained mm. within our faith. So our faith, you know, it's just, it's just one part of it. So that's how I, that's how I see that. Right, because science is using observation, right, and methods to explore what we can see, what we can experience. And so my thing has become, how can that ever contradict God? If, if we truly believe God is big enough, and, and we talked about, you know, uh, Tico saying, man, you know, everything's going to be 700 times larger. And that was probably too small, right? We now know the universe oh, gosh, is yeah. even he would, bigger. He would, he, would be, he would be completely, uh, he would have nightmares. Uh, he could know uh, what, 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 what we know today. Yeah. And so if the universe is that big, then then God is so much bigger. So how could anything we ever learn about about how we evolved or how old the universe is or how big it is, how could that ever contradict God? Because God is so much bigger, right? Yeah. It's almost like if we feel the need to fight against those things, our God might be too small, that's, just that's, like that's, his was. That's, that's essentially what I think, too. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, but the, the, the lovely thing about, say, the book of Job, and I mentioned this briefly in the, in the, uh, in this, in the book. The book of Job, uh, if you remember, uh, ends with this, God presents this cosmic vision to Job. And, um, you know, Job sees just yeah. how small he is, you know, when, in comparison just to God's creation. And that was sufficient for him to, you know, to to stand up and brushes you know brush himself off and leave the ash heap that was sufficient of an answer, but the thing I love about that story is that not only did Job see how small he was in 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 relative to creation, but it's a story in which God is personal because God showed up. Yeah, you know, so God is both. There's there's this real balance between the cosmic and the personal in that book because God did show up for Job. And gave Job the answer that Job needed, maybe not the answer Job was looking for, <laughs> but it gave Job the answer that Job needed. And so in that sense, it was a very personal encounter. But it was also, in a sense, very impersonal because Job saw all of creation and saw himself relative to it. So there's a nice balance uh, between the two there. Well, and, and I think Job realized how much he doesn't know. I mean, if you're looking for uh, a statement from the Bible to sort of back up the, the mysterious nature of God and creation, I mean, look at Job, right? Question after question yeah. that he can't answer. Yeah. And it sort of made him realize, whoa, I thought I had all the answers and I really don't have very many. And, you know, nowadays we might be able to answer some of those questions. You know, I know some people believe the book of Job might be the oldest book of the Bible. Yeah. So whenever it was written thousands of years ago, they may not have known some of the answers to those questions. And today we might look at some of those and say, yeah, you know, we kind of know the answers. But there's an all new set of questions, right? As you sort of hinted at earlier, that we don't know the answers to. The more we explore, right. the more we don't know. Like the fact that the universe is expanding and at a faster rate, correct? Yeah, faster rate. It was assumed for decades that it would be slowing down, but it's actually speeding up. 
So is there anything we can draw from from that right there? The fact that our universe is forever expanding, does that mean anything to you? How do you mean? Like, uh, can you rephrase the question? Yeah. So the fact that God created a universe that is always going outward and further into the unknown. If I think about that, I just feel like that has to say something about God. Well, I like that. I've never actually made that connection before, but, but, uh, but I, 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 I think I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, for me, though, it's complicated <laughs> because, yes, of course. because there's like long-term consequences of this, which are really not very pretty. And uh, Right. And, Everything will be too far yeah, apart. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, you know, in a few billion years, you know, there'll be fewer star, uh, fewer galaxies in the sky and that sort of thing. I mean, they'll still be out there, but we won't be able to see them anymore. Um, all kinds of odd things like that. Um but yeah, I think I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I like the idea of, of you know, always expanding, uh, always going into the unknown. Sure. <laughs> so let's let's get practical for a few minutes, if we can, okay. from the sense of tell me about crows. Crows? Yes. Yeah, what do you, uh, because I saw that you got a Christmas present, I believe, <laughs> of crows in your in your yeah, office. Well, I love, so I, tell me about well, that. I'm, I'm a birder. I'm a bird watcher. It's sort of my hobby. And uh, I've always loved crows. Uh, they're everywhere. You see them all the time. And they're um, like reminders of our mortality, you know, like, you know, a little bit poetic there, um, which I kind of appreciate. And um, my wife, uh, I've always wanted, you know, for a Halloween decoration to have, you know, big black crows all over the yard, you know, just you know, like 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 an Alfred Hitchcock kind of uh, thing, and so for Christmas, my wife actually bought me eleven crows, eleven crows, and uh, different sizes, and they're all had they're all in different poses, and they all have real feathers on them. You know, they're all just like uh, you know styrofoam on the inside or whatever. But um, so she gave me these crows for for Christmas. So I have these. I got Halloween decorations for Christmas, which which if you know me. It's just really right up my alley. And, uh, you know, they're, they're set up in our living room now with our Christmas tree still. And, uh, my wife is like, those are a little creepy. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, I love them. I'm actually going to bring them to my office and put them up in my, uh, on on my top shelf, my book bookshelf. That's perfect. Well, I know you, I know you talk about birds as vessels of the holy. So what, what is that kind of meant for you? Because if we're going to say that we, we don't look at God directly, but we look, you know, at the things God made, right? I mean, I think you can tell something about an artist from a painting or a book that they make or um, the work that someone does. So if we're saying we can't look at God directly, but we can kind of look to the side, then, I mean, I think that's your whole, well, not the whole thing, right? Just to simplify, but a big part of what you're saying is we we look at what God made and we study it through the scientific method honestly wherever it leads yeah, right because that leads us to the true God rather than saying this is who God is and I'm only going to see what I want to see right. we say well let me look at the creation and then draw a right. conclusion from that right. which Jesus does all the time right he's like look at the yeah. birds look at yeah. the seeds look yeah. at you know so so what talk about birds as vessels of the well whole. you know I think that birds and all creation, you know, trees, birds, you know, uh, kind of, uh, they kind of give praise by being who they are, being what they are. And um, I would never say that God is a bird, but I think that God, in a sense, and I'll tend toward the uh, the mystic end of things with this. That's just, I guess, maybe where I, I live a lot of times is that I, I really do believe that God does shine through uh, creation. 
And for, yeah, for no me, doubt. it just happens to be birds that do that for me. Of course, space and of course, you know, physics as well. But uh, these days, over the last few years, I've really become where I, where I see a bird and I can see it. If I can see a bird, really see it, you know, with without a lot of junk, you know, in my eye, you know, you're talking about the log in your eye. If I can see a bird clearly, then I think I'm I'm seeing something about God clearly, and that's just you know the part of creation that for me is most you know people say what does it mean to find God I don't know what that means not really but I do know that when I can see a new bird or see an old bird in a new way that it uh, it really makes me feel deeply connected like I belong uh, and uh, and I think that's God acting. Yeah, well, I think that's very Jesus-like of you. Uh, he seemed to be a great observer of life and then was able to draw conclusions. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to do an episode soon about uh, a bird spoke to me, yeah. <laughs> kind of as a as a uh, partly crazy, partly actually like really happened. But uh, meditation and silence has become really important. And there was a day where I, you know, I, I think I was really struggling, kind of going through a lot and the birds started chirping outside and it could have been a distraction, right? Like, oh, you've taken me away from yeah. my, my time of silence. But instead there was a sense of the verse coming to my head of Jesus says, look, they don't store in barns mm-hmm. yet. I, I provide for you. And it was, I almost think God was waking me up with the sound of a bird. And so has there ever been a time when you've been observing a bird? Has there, what, what conclusions have you sort of drawn about God from, from birds? Or, I don't, or I don't, I don't know. I don't, it's hard to say that I have can, can draw a conclusion in any sense sure. other than, I mean, you know, there've been moments when a bird really made an impact on me. Uh, I was standing at the dishwasher a few years ago and I looked out, we have this little wall in our backyard and I saw a Cooper's hawk sitting right there, um, like no more than about 12 feet from me by the side of the window. And uh, just, it was just one of these moments where I was kind of open and I really saw the bird. I saw all the details. I stood there for like a minute, full minute, completely transfixed by it. And um, that's just one example. But, it, you know, when, when that, when that I, I don't know if I can draw a conclusion. I don't know if I can. Sure. No, that's OK. Uh, other than to say that, you know. Uh, remark on, say, God's creativity or something like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think that to me, you know, for for the average person sort of listening to this podcast, you know, they're not going to necessarily go necessarily go and learn about nuclear physics, right, right. or all the equations and all the depth. But I think there is an invitation to have eyes to see the normal everyday stuff. That's that's what I, I mean. Yeah, that's exactly right. So whether it's a bird or whether it is a star at night, you know, they're or it's your it's your spouse or your friend or, or a stranger on the street or whatever. Absolutely. How as kind of my final question as we get closer to uh, the end here, how has having sort of a one eye towards science, I guess, or two, and 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 also the same towards scripture. I know in your book you mentioned a way that science has helped you or uh, invited you to see certain scripture passages in a creative yeah, or different yeah, way. Yeah, right, right. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah, and this is something that I um, well, as I say in my book, I say that uh, this is just something that happens when you're a scientist and you read scripture. You know, whenever you read scripture, you're you're bringing your your knowledge of the world to it. 
and so you read it differently. But, for example, uh, the most direct, simple, straightforward example is when, you know, in Genesis, when God, you know, does not directly create the animals of the sea, for example, the fish of the sea, the things that swim in the sea. Uh, God says, let the waters bring forth living things. Mm. Uh, and so there seems to be the water is some sort of intermediary between God and the, and, and, and the, and the swimming creatures, you know, and then he says, let the earth bring forth creeping things and so forth and so on. So there seemed to be this idea that it was the earth and the water had been given sort of this potential to create, to be a, to, to itself be a channel of creation. And so when you're a, a scientist and you know something about evolution and you carry that around with you wherever you go every day and you read that, it, well, it just sort of resonates. Now, I don't think that the, the author of scripture knew anything about evolution or was given some secret message <laughs> from God. I think the, the writer of, of, of Genesis saw that creation had a potential to create, that creation itself was generative and, yeah. and, and wrote that in. Um, and so... But as a scientist who knows something about uh, evolution, that sort of thing just pops out. And so, you know, whether that's helpful or not to everybody, I don't know. But that's how I read it. No, I love that kind of observation because there's a sense in which God really invites us to be co-creators and really mm -hmm. invites the creation to shine forth and to do what it's going to do. And so uh, there's a freedom there. There's an invitation there that I think is, is really beautiful. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that insight. Um, if you were to leave people with sort of one thought or question or a couple of thoughts, uh, what might that be? If you, if you could sum things up in a few sentences, um, well, for, first thing I would say uh, as a statement would be that uh, nothing science can ever do, um, even if it proves, you know, the origin of life, even if it explains consciousness, uh, none of that is going to uh, alter my faith, basically, it, it, or if it alters, it's only going to make it enlarged and not make it small. It's not going to threaten it. Um, I think that the model of, of science threatening faith is, is more of a, of a symptom of our over, overvaluing science and uh, keeping our faith too small. Uh, yeah. But on the more sort of what I would want people to do would be to really keep your eyes open and, uh, and to, and to take time to get to know the world around you, get to know creation. Uh, we've not done such a good job as stewards of creation. And uh, the more people who can look outside and see something beautiful, uh, the better off we're going to be in the future. Amen to that. So, uh, Paul, where can people find you if they want to dig deeper online? Or uh, I know you've written three or four, three books, three, right? Yeah, three. So where can people find you? Uh, they can find everything they, the, about me is at pwallace.net, my website. Perfect. I will put that in the show notes. And you are quite a tweeter, right? So people can uh, right. find you on That's Twitter right. and, and see everything you're up to. From uh, my website, but my Twitter is, is Paul M. Wall. Excellent. At Paul M. Wall. 
Thanks, Paul. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was an honor to get to talk about uh, loving quasars, to see the world a little bit as you do. So I just really appreciate that. Uh, thanks a lot, Phil. Hello, friends. Phil here again. Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion with Dr. Paul Wallace. I pray that you are challenged, encouraged, and blessed, and that as you go throughout your day, you may have eyes just a little bit more open to how God's creation can reveal something about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to you, that science has so much to offer. I pray that your faith can be expanded, that you can have a growing, expanding faith the more you learn and the more you realize how much we don't know. So if you enjoyed this discussion, I do encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge blessing to us. Check out some of the other really cool interviews and episodes we've done. We hope that they are a blessing to you as you look to make space for the Holy Spirit. And until next time, brothers and sisters, grace and peace be with you.